like to ask you to consider three completely hypothetical situations. Number one, let's just say that you live under a government that you don't necessarily agree with. Right? Completely hypothetical. Let's just say that this government under which you live regularly um, makes policies that are contrary to God's word. How do you live under that government as a Christian? Hypothetical situation number two. Let's just say that you work at a job where you're asked to display your pronouns in your email signature block. What do you do? Hypothetical situation number three. Let's just say you live next door to a homosexual couple and they invite you and your kids to come over and join them for dinner. How do you respond? How do you relate to your neighbors? How do you teach your kids to relate to your neighbors? I think you get the picture, don't you? Christians live in a non-Christian world, don't we? Do you ever struggle to know how to live out your faith in this non-Christian world? Do Do you ever struggle to figure out how you as a Christian are supposed to live under a non Christian government? Do you ever struggle to know how you as a Christian are supposed to live next to, work with, be in a family with non-Christians? Well, history provides us with some examples of a few extremes of what Christians have done in response. We might call one of the extremes over here on the right wing Some have confronted the culture with God's truth, boldly condemning ungodliness at every point. Maybe over here on the the left wing, instead of confronting and condemning, they have withdrawn, cloistered together in communes and in monasteries in the mountains. Well, our sermon text this morning in Titus chapter 3 gives Christians like me and you instructions on how we are to live in this non-Christian world. And friends, it doesn't look like either one of those extremes. But you might actually be surprised by some of the things that we're about to read. So please take your copy of God's Word, Titus chapter 3. Verse 1 through 3 is our sermon text for today. As I read it, I'm going to include verse 4 and 5 for context, but we're going to be dealing with verse 4 through 7 next week more thoroughly. This is God's word. Titus 3. Remind them, meaning Christians, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, 
and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. That's God's word. Amen. We'll remember in chapter 2 that Paul labored to give every member of the church, older, younger, men, women, the high in society, the lowest members of society, to give every member of the church instructions on how to live out their faith. That was chapter 2. But now in chapter 3, you can tell that he's turning his attention to the church as a whole, not dividing out any particular kind of person, but saying to all Christians, to the church, both there on Crete and to the church of all time and in all places, he's going to give us instructions about how Christians are to live in a non-Christian world. He begins verse 1 with these two words, remind them, remind them. And what we have in verse 1 through 3 are four important reminders for Christians as we live in this non-Christian world. Now, I remembered tackling this text in a previous sermon at a previous church, and this week as I was working on this particular sermon, wording each of the points, however I was wanting to uh, word it at that particular time, I thought, well, I'm going to go back and see what I did then and there, which I don't usually do. But when I read my former sermon, I was like, ooh, that's good. That rarely happens. And then I realized why it was good. Because there was a note at the beginning of that sermon that said this, this outline has been adapted from John MacArthur's sermon on (laughs) Titus 3. But now that I've seen it, I can't just go, okay, I can lay that really good thing aside. The substance of this sermon has been thoroughly worked over this week for hours upon hours, but the structure has been adapted from John MacArthur's sermon on Titus 3, 1 through 8, and it is helpful and good. Four important reminders For Christians, as we live in a non-Christian world, reminder number one, Paul says, remember your calling. Remember your calling. I begin with this because it's what comes before and after. And remember, context is king. It always helps us to understand why Paul is saying what he's saying at this particular time in the letter. Right before and right after chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, we'll notice that Paul is talking about our calling. It's bookended by the Christian's calling to good works. Look at chapter 2, verse 14 before it. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us, to purify for himself, Look at these words, a people 
for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus paid the price to redeem a people who are zealous, eager, and enthusiastic about good works. The people of Jesus are to live zealous for good works. Now look at after this. That's our calling. Chapter 3, verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that. Everything that he just said, he says, here's the so that. So that those who have believed in God. Stop. How many of you have believed in God? Raise your hands. Okay, fantastic. That's me and you then. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Why? Because these things are excellent and profitable for people. Before this and after this, we see that God calls Christians to be zealous and devoted to good works in a non-Christian world. But why? What is the purpose for which God has called us to good works? Well, I suggest that it's because God is on a mission. And God uses our good works as part of his mission. He uses the good works of his church corporately and individually to display his glory to the nations. He uses the good works of his people to demonstrate the credibility of the gospel to turn Cretans into Christians. He he uses the good works of his people to accomplish his purposes of redemption. This is what Paul has been saying in chapter 2. Do you remember that in chapter 2 he gave three purpose statements? Just look back in chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, and you'll see, so that, so that, so that. Three purposes for living out the faith with godliness and good works. Look at verse 5. Why are we supposed to live this way? So that the word of God may not be reviled. Verse 8. Why are we supposed to live with godliness and good works? So that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Why are we supposed to live with godliness and good works? Verse 10, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. All of that to say the way Christians live has a direct impact on the reputation of the gospel. Those Christians there on Crete You in your home, neighborhood, workplace. Just like a platinum ring that holds an engagement diamond, our calling as Christians is to live in such a way that our attitudes, our words, and our actions show off the beauty of the gospel diamond. And God uses our good works to accomplish his purposes of redemption. Friends, let's remind ourselves. Only God can do the work of redemption. 
But God uses his people and our good works as part of the process. So Paul says, Christians, as you live in this very non-Christian world, number one, remember your calling. Remember why you're here. You're living on mission with God. And he is going to use you as you live out godliness and good works. So with those bookends in place, we now go directly to chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, and Paul gets more specific and more practical. I like specific, I like practical, don't you? So, number two, as we have remembered our calling, now number two, remember your responsibilities. Remember your responsibilities. You'll notice in verse 1 and 2 that there are seven responsibilities listed explaining how Christians, specifically, practically, how Christians are to live in a non-Christian world. Now, make no mistake, this list is not exhaustive, but it does give us an idea of how Christians are to relate with Cretans in that culture. Three responsibilities in verse 1 relate to living under governing authorities, and then four responsibilities out of the seven in verse two relate to all people. Now, how do we know that he went from government to all people? Because look at the beginning of verse two. Do you see there that it says no one? And then look at the end at verse of verse two, all people. So this is broad and universal. He's not just talking about governing authorities, but he's talking about everyone, no one, and all people. So let's reset our thinking for a moment. Do you ever struggle to know how you're supposed to relate and what you're supposed to say and do as a Christian in your non-Christian world? Should we resist the ungodly government? Should we confront the ungodly lifestyles of our neighbors? Should we debate our co-workers about their religious views? What should our posture and our disposition be toward non-Christians? We're about to find out. And some of these instructions might surprise you. In verse 1, the first three instructions focus on how we Christians are supposed to live under a non-Christian government. Look there, three of them. Christians have a responsibility, friends, to be a good citizen. We are to be good citizens. Look at these first three things. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Remind them to be obedient to rulers and authorities, and then remind them to be ready for every good work. That could be universal, but I think it's probably more associated with in the context of your society as a citizen there on Crete or here in America. So consider those three just very briefly, one at a time. Um, Christians have a responsibility to be submissive. 
We're supposed to willingly submit ourselves, not be beaten into submission. This, this is a reciprocal. It's a, it's a you do this to yourself kind of a verb where we willingly subject ourselves to the authority of, remember who he's talking about here. Crete was under the rule of the Roman Empire. So we think we have a pretty ungodly government. The emperor thought he was God and made people say so. And the inspired apostle Paul here is saying, willingly submit yourself to that kind of an ungodly government. Why? What in the world? Shouldn't we resist? Well, he tells us why in Romans chapter 13. You're probably familiar with this. I'll just touch on it briefly. He says, let every person, that's me and you, right? I qualify to you. Sure you do. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So he says Christians of all people ought to be good citizens and operating in submission to the God-appointed government in their land. Friends, that is as true in America today as it was in Crete and in Rome of that day. Number two, be obedient. What does it look like? To be submissive to the authorities? Well, parents, let me ask you, what does it look like for your kids to be submissive to you? It looks like them actually obeying what you say. So, submissive citizens obey their governing authorities. Christians, Jesus told you, you should pay taxes, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Christians, we are to obey the laws of man. Every law? Well, we have an example from the apostles, don't we? That we should obey the law of man to the extent that the law of man does not require us to disobey the law of God, in which case we can take up the same refrain of the apostles when they said in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. And when we do, we should accept the same treatment that they got. Be submissive, be obedient. Number three, be ready for every good work. So I wonder what good works Paul has in mind here that relates in particular to citizenship and living in country. Well, I don't know. So we're not sure about that, but here's what we are sure about. And this is startling and instructive enough that Christians are supposed to be ready for every. All right? We're supposed to be ready. That means that Christians are to be prepared and eager about good works. You know what it feels like to be prepared and eager for things, don't you? Like, I'm always ready for ice cream. Always. Eager, zealous, devoted, prepared for ice cream. You name the place, I'm there. Are we that eager? Are we that ready for good works? I know I'm not. 
unless you count golf and ice cream as a good work. Be ready for what good works? What's the word? Every. Every good work. Whatever needs to be done that's a good and righteous and truthful thing to do. Paul uses this phrase, every good work, eight times in the New Testament. This is a Paul thing. He he wants to define the Christian life as being eager for every good work. Every good work. Is that what your life looks like? Every good work? Every good work? We don't have to narrow into our own niche and favorite kinds of good works. We can be broad about this. We can do anything good we want to do. Man, the yard is wide open. Go play. Have yourself a ball doing good works. Whatever needs to be done, go on and do it. What would it look like for you to be ready for every good work in your daily life? That's how Christians ought to live under a non-Christian government. We ought to be good citizens in our society. We ought to be on the front lines of doing good in our culture rather than withdraw, which is sometimes my tendency to my shame. The next four instructions that are in verse 2 Seven instructions that help us to remember our responsibilities. We're remembering our responsibilities. We know our calling. Now we're remembering our responsibilities. There's seven of them. Three of them have to do with Christians living under a non-Christian government. Now four of them have to do with how we live with just other people. So your non-Christian family members, neighbors, co-workers, friends, fellow students... Christians not only have a responsibility to be good citizens, but what you see here in this list of four is that Christians have a responsibility to be gracious people. Look at verse 2. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. I'll take more of that. I think our country, our city, our world could handle more of that. Do you see the connection between these four instructions in verse 2? Christians are to relate to non-Christians. Yes, all people. Christians too. But here we're talking specifically about in a non-Christian culture. You can tell that's the tone of the text. We're supposed to relate to non-Christians in such a way that, look at these four things, our private words, our conversations, our disposition, and our interactions are marked by righteousness, peace, gentleness, and kindness. Friends, these are the kinds of things that represent our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our responsibility in our relationship at work and in our neighborhood. 
Well, let's be honest. It's really difficult when we're surrounded by outrageous ungodliness. That's why Paul's reminding us. Remember your calling. Remember your responsibilities. Don't forget why you're here or what you're supposed to do. So he says, responsibility number four, remind them to speak evil of no one. No one. Christians should not speak evil. We shouldn't say anything that's dishonoring, degrading, or unkind about how many people? No people. Not your senator, not your president, not your neighbor, not your mother-in-law. Speak no evil. If you have a problem with that, you're going to have to take it up with God and his word. How do you speak about those with whom you disagree? Number five, remind them to avoid what? Avoid ungodliness? Avoid sin? Avoid Hollywood? No. Avoid quarreling. You know what I'm afraid of? I'm afraid that much of what we call evangelism is actually just quarreling. It's just arguing with people about religious stuff. So so do the non-Christians that you talk to get the sense that you're really listening to them or just wanting an opportunity to correct them? There is a way to discuss and disagree without quarreling. Read the Gospels. Watch how Jesus did this. And Paul gives us a hint. Responsibility number six. Remind them to what? Be gentle. Be gentle. Would people say that you're kind and considerate, gracious with your words? Jesus was. And aren't you glad? Sure. Absolutely. Jesus had harsh words. He confronted who? The religious leaders who were deceiving and abusing the people. But you probably don't live next door to one of those. You probably don't work with one of those. You know how how Jesus talked to the normal expressive individualists of his society. He talked to them with gentleness. He took the four-time divorcee and the alcoholic and he spoke to them with gentleness. Dane Ortland says in his very good book, Jesus is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. And may Jesus' people be the same. Remind them, number seven, to show perfect courtesy. 
not just courtesy. Full, orbed, rich, mature courtesy, kindness toward, uh, there's that word again, everyone. You mean I have to be nice too? Christians are supposed to demonstrate, not just have kindness in our hearts for all people. We're supposed to show it. See there? Look, it's again, Bible. Show complete kindness with our words and our actions. The the opposite of this in the Greek is being a complete jerk. But you have to know the original language to see that. It's having a bad temper and showing yourself to be rough with people. And to whom are we to show this complete, mature, well-rounded kindness? All people. We can't pick and choose, friends. We're to show this without partiality. So the people we like and those people that we naturally clash with. So we're supposed to remember our responsibilities. Christians who live under a non-Christian government are supposed to be what? Good citizens. Christians who live with non-Christian family, friends, neighbors, school members, co-workers are supposed to be what? Gracious people. But it's not easy. It's not easy. That's why Paul's reminding us. Our government is corrupt and ungodly, and so many of the people that we interact with on a daily basis, they're just so different, just so cretin. And so Paul says, I hear you. So you know what's going to really help? Remember your former condition. Remember that you used to be Cretan too. Remember your former condition. Verse 3. For We ourselves, not just you, but Paul lumps himself into this. He was a very religious person. He was like the cream of the crop in his religious seminary. He says, this is me too. And all of you people, older, younger, men, women, high, low members of society, we as Christians ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. For we ourselves were once. Friends, we've said it about five times now. One of the beautiful, glorious parts of the gospel is that we were once. Fill in the blank. And Paul does. Rob read it for us this morning. Paul filled in the blank with remember that you were once separated from Christ. Alienated from all of the 
covenants of Israel, strangers to God's redemptive covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's who you once were, Christian. Don't forget it. Keep that in the front of your mind every day. Why? Why does Paul want us to remember what we once were? Because you once were just like them. And when you remember that, it fills you with humility. Because what you once were, they still are. And that fills us with compassion. And because the only difference between you and them is that God rescued you by his goodness and loving kindness, by his mercy and his grace. God appeared, epiphany, burst onto the scene with his sovereign saving power and changed your life. That's the only difference, Christian, between you and your next door neighbor, the Cretan. It's the only difference. Remember your former condition. Christians, when we remember our former condition, it fills us with humility and compassion about the present condition of the non-Christians around us and fills us with hope and zeal for their future conversion. So Paul gives us six reminders of our former condition here. Six reminders of our former condition. Listen, this is the natural condition of every person apart from Christ. So time out just for a minute. Can I zoom in and talk to those of you who are not quite sure if you're a Christian yet? Those of you who are still considering it, or maybe you've rejected it. What you're about to read is what the Bible says is your condition right now. And Christians, let me let me talk to you just for a minute. This is what every single one of us were apart from Christ. The only reason we're not this anymore is because Christ rescued us, atoned for us, purified us. You remember all those good, rich theological verbs that we talked about two weeks ago? So as we look at this list, I want to make note. I want, to know, I want to make note about Paul's tone here. He's about to describe the Cretans. And we know their reputation from sermons that are gone now. We, we know their reputation for being ungodly, immoral, a bunch of liars, right? I want you to notice when he describes non-Christians, listen to his tone. He doesn't speak about them with anger and disgust. His tone is that of compassion, even pity. How do you think about non-Christians? Do you think about non-Christians in government, in Hollywood, in your neighborhood, at your school? Do you think about non-Christians with contempt or with compassion 
if you think with contempt, then maybe you've forgotten what you once were. What we read here in verse 3, I want you to notice, is the downward spiral of human depravity. It's the downward spiral of human depravity. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, enslaved, wasting your life in the chaos of reciprocal hatred. Six reminders of our former condition, their present condition. Number one, remember you were once foolish just like them. You want to get your pronouns out and start doing the us and them thing? Here's the truth about you. You were foolish just like they are now. Naturally, we are without understanding. We don't accept God's wisdom or his ways. Why? Because the Bible describes us as being wise in our own eyes. We think we know what's best for ourselves. The definition of foolishness. We were once foolish. Number two, remember you were once disobedient, just like they are. We naturally reject any kind of authority over us. Do you have children? You don't have to teach toddlers to resist authority. The curse of sin has hardwired autonomy into our human DNA. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. We sit on the throne of our own lives and we obey our own law. We are disobedient first to God and then we'll express our disobedience to just about any authority that gets in our way. Number three. Remember, Paul says, you were once, look at the words here, led astray. You hear Paul's tone? He says, non-Christians are actively being led astray, led on a path of deception and destruction by the enemies of God. Sin blinds them and deceives them. Sin has a hook in the nose, friends, of your children. Sin's got a hook in the nose of your neighbors and your fellow workers and students and is leading them away from how God designed life to be. They are being led astray. That's how Jesus saw people. And it filled his heart with compassion. Jesus looked on the multitudes, looked on the crowds, and he said, they are like sheep without a shepherd. They're helpless. They're hopeless. And Jesus cried tears of compassion. And then Jesus did the great word work and shed drops of redeeming blood. Because he is the Lamb of God who sacrificed himself so that we could be returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. 
remember. Remember what you once were. Number four, remember you were once slaves. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, and now what? Slaves. Is this how you see non-Christians? Is this how you saw yourself? That you are actually enslaved in the shackles of our own natural desires. Our appetite for food becomes gluttony. Our enthusiasm for recreation becomes escaping reality. Our desire for sex becomes fornication and adultery. Our need for sleep becomes laziness. Our taste for things becomes greed. Friends, we're not living according to our free will. We're slaves to sin. Slaves to all kinds of desires and pleasures. Number five, remember, remember that you once were and they still are passing our days in malice and envy. Passing our days, passing our days presents the national, pardon me, natural condition of man in such pathetic terms. He's not angry. He's saying, look at them. They're like hamsters stuck in a wheel, confined to an endless loop, driven by two things, malice and envy. Malice and envy. What's malice? It's an evil mindset toward other people. Wishing evil on others. Why? Because of envy. Because they have what I want. They get to do what I wish I could. They get to be. What I really wish I was. Here we are in our little hamster wheel. Living inside of our own heads. Stewing about what other people have and what we don't. And if we can't have it, we don't want them to either. That's what we used to be. That's what they still are. Remember your former condition. You were slaves. You were passing your days, wasting your life in malice and envy. Number six, remember, you were once hated by others and hating one another. The the downward spiral of human depravity ends up where humanity has turned on one another. Now, listen, not necessarily always blatantly, but very often just inwardly despising one another and operating out of this wild instinct of self-preservation. Every man for himself. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there. And I'm going to do for me and mine. So they hate us, we hate them. Reciprocal hatred. And this is sad. Look at the chaos that we have created by our sin. We rejected God's rule over us. We said, nah, you keep your shalom for yourself. We're going to do this on our own own terms. And guess what? We found out 
we're our own worst enemies. One of the commentaries that I read, the guy's name is Towner. He says, life outside the influence of God's grace is destructive chaos that collapses in on itself. That's what we used to be. That's who your non-Christian kids still are. That's who your very powerful boss still is. Paul doesn't leave us there. Remember your calling. Remember your responsibilities. Remember your former condition. And then remember your salvation. Here's the gospel. God was not willing to leave you in your foolishness, disobedience, deception, in your enslavement, in your wasting away of your life. God was not willing to leave you in the chaos of your hate. Verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, three words, He saved us. The only difference between you now and then, the only difference between me and you and the non-Christians who reign over us and live around us is that God rescued us. Remember that. Remember that. Several times in our service now we have read that before and after that Here's who we once were, but God. One of my favorites is in Ephesians chapter 2 that we did not read. Listen to this awful description of who we once were. Pitiful description of who we once were. And then the big but God moment. Listen to this. This is one of my favorites. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But... God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace are you saved. And when we remember our calling and remember our responsibilities, and remember our former condition, and when we remember our salvation, friends, we will have all of the fuel that we need to go and live godly lives full of good works so that God might use us to redeem the non-Christians around us too. 
Don't you want that? Don't you want that for your neighbors? When you see them in your yard, doesn't your heart break for them? Don't you want? Don't you want your coworkers to be redeemed from sin and reconciled to God? It only happens through the Lord Jesus Christ and the miraculous regenerating power of God. But in the process, God gives us the privilege of being used. So Christians who live in a non-Christian world, let's remember our calling. Let's remember our responsibilities. Let's remember our former condition. Let's remember our salvation so that we can live it out, that they too might be saved. Let's pray together. God, we can't do anything except for humble ourselves before you and say thank you, thank you, thank you that you worked to transform our foolishness into wisdom, to turn our disobedience into willing submission, to rescue us from being led astray and lead us in truth. Thank you that you redeemed we who were slaves of sin and make us now slaves of righteousness. God, we thank you that you stopped the madness of wasting our lives in malice and envy so that we can now invest ourselves in good works. Thank you for freeing us from the chaos of hating and being hated so that we can love even our enemies, because that's what you did. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me, please. Let's, let's respond to God in song. Was lost.